0: Thank you for visiting theopenword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of this series from Alan Schaeffer.
1: Right, well, let's pick up here. Um, left off here in verse 27, again, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This shows the intimate connection between Christ and the sheep. He knows who they are. They know who he is. No confusion. And he says, and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. This here is one of the great passages in the scripture on eternal security. All right. So if you were from a background that did not believe in eternal security, shame on you. (laughs) I say that jokingly. There's a lot of confusion out there, but look, folks. Jesus knows who you are. You know who He is, and no one's going to snatch you out of His hand. Because not only is He the Good Shepherd, He laid down His life for you. He's going to protect you. He's going to keep you. And let me ask a question: What kind of what is what good is salvation if you never know you have it? I'd like to live that way. I mean, that's why I feel so bad about Catholicism. Catholics, they don't know if they're saved or not. Not, the end of the week. not And even then they got to go off to purgatory and they might have to hang around there for a few million years until they work off all their sins, depending on, you know, how bad they were. They may, never, they may not get out for a long time.
2: I never bought that. All those years I was raised <laughs> Yeah. <buy> the purgatory.
1: <laughs> until someone lights enough candles. I mean, you know, it's interesting when you go... Yeah, in America, you know, we've got an Americanized version of Catholicism. You want to see more, a more pagan version, trot over to the Europe and check out some of the big Catholic churches over there.
0: You still believe in indulgences,
1: huh? we We into Steffen's the- Dome, which is uh, the big Catholic church there in Vienna. Huge, I mean, humongous place there. And they've got places all along the sides where people have lit candles. Because if you light a candle and say a prayer, you'll knock some years off of somebody's purgatory sentence. Pay oh yeah, you pay a year, Depending on the size of the candle, you pay a euro or five euros. Depending on how long you want the candle to burn and how many years you really want them to get off. You know, the small candle's worth, you know, 10 years and the big one's worth 50 or whatever. Is
2: really
1: nice. Yeah. And, and, and then, you know, walking into Notre Dame there in Paris and walking into the great cathedral there and it's beautiful, I mean it's really an interesting place to go into and, and seeing all the different little stations along the way where you could stop off and, and and for a price you could have somebody say a private mass, you can have your own private little mass there and, and get some years off purgatory and then by visiting all the so called uh, churches of the pilgrimage where if you go there and they have some holy hardware Relics. And if you see that, you get years off purgatory and and and, and never know if you're really going to make it. Never know if you're really done enough. And then we have people in in some of the churches today that, well, you know, my salvation. Yeah, it's God's grace. But, you know, if I commit a sin, it's all over. He doesn't want anything to do with me. I have to get saved all over again. Look, this verse is saying something here. Who are the sheep? God's elect. What do they do? They know Christ. They hear Christ, right? And what did Christ just say to the Pharisees? You don't know me. You don't hear me because what? You're not my sheep. Of course you're not going to hear me. But my sheep know who I am. And they follow me. And I'm going to give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Now, notice what he said there. I'm going to give them eternal life and some of them won't perish. There's no some here. It's all. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. In other words, no one's going to be able to come on. The false teachers, and this this is great here. The false teachers, the false spiritual leaders will not be able to trick the true child of God they are not be able to ultimately trick you. Why? You know the voice of the shepherd. You know his voice. Now some say, well, okay. All right, Schaefer. It says that God can't, that no one can pluck them out of God's hand, but you know, you could jump out of his hand if you really wanted to. No. 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 Your salvation, the is 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 the security of your salvation is based in the sovereignty of God, who says you will never perish. And by the way, when God redeemed you, what did He know about you? And He knew all your failures, failures, didn't He? And He took you in anyways, didn't He? He knew He knew about all your failures. And he saved you anyhow. There's nothing, there's no sin you can do that God's saying, boy, I didn't see that one coming. I didn't know, I didn't know he would do that. God knows. And God loves you anyways. And he's saying, no one's going to be able to pluck you out of my hand. And he said, my father who has given them to me. Folks, you can't read this and not, you can't read this as an Arminian. The only way to understand this is to realize, what, how did the sheep, how are they got Christ's sheep? The Father gave them to him. And that fits in consistently with everything Christ has been teaching from chapter 6 on, right? All that the Father gives to me will come to me. How is it that you hear the voice of God? How is it that you hear the voice of the shepherd? Because God gave you to Christ. He says, the Father that has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. They're not going to be able to snatch them out of my hand, and they're not going to be able to snatch them out of my Father's hand who gave them to me. I and my Father are one, and that does not mean they're one in purpose. It means they're one in equality, trinity, deity. You can't jump out of the hand of God. You can't be snatched out of his hand. You can't lose it. And why can't you lose your salvation? Because in the eternal grand scheme of things, you didn't do anything to get it. You were given to God, or to Christ, by the Father. Now again, understand, what is that eternal perspective? In time, what did you do as an elect person? You believed. You believed. You believed. Seemingly, from your perspective at that time, you exercise faith, but that faith was a grant, a gift from God, who granted you repentance. And that's a mystery that we don't understand. We don't sort it out. We just take it for what it is. I'd like how you put it last
0: time, um, I think we were saying, it said it's not about our ability to uh, you know, stay with God. About his ability to
1: keep us. And you know what? That's comforting because if my if my security of salvation depended on me, I'm done for. Right? I'm done for. Because I can't. I. I, I can't. I'm too weak.
2: Explain the scripture says, "Cleanse yourself from all unrighteousness." How can you, you know, cleanse yourself from all unrighteousness? Well,
1: I'm asking you a question. How can you cleanse what gives you the ability to cleanse yourself from all unrighteousness? What gives you the ability to do the right thing? Well, the Holy
2: Spirit.
1: So is it you or is it the Holy Spirit? Well,
2: it's the Holy Spirit, but there, there has to be the factor of you in there when it tells when we're instructed to cleanse ourselves from
1: all You've got the paradox, and it is a paradox. It's you, it's the Holy Spirit, but really it's not you. It's really the Holy Spirit, but then it is of you, but not really of you. Now you're sounding like Paul in Rome, Galatians 2.20. All right. Well, what is it, Paul? Is it you of the Holy Spirit? Well, it's both of us, but really it's him, but I live, but really not I don't live. I don't really live. It's Christ who lives. Right. I mean, are there commands to us to do this and do that and do that? Absolutely there are. But what gives us the ability to even do that? What gives you the ability to obey? It's not you. It's the Holy Spirit that grants you the ability to will and to do of his good favor. Philippians 2.13. It's God which works in you both to will and to do. It's not you. It's God who works in you to have the desire to do it and the will to do it. It's not just you. Because when you start thinking, well, it's just up to me. It's just me. I got to do it. Now you now you're falling into the legalism trap. Now you're you're on your road to becoming a Pharisee who says, I can do it on my own. I can I can make it on my own. No, you can't make it on your own. That's not to to try and minimize my personal responsibility to obey, but the only power that enables me to obey and to please God is the Holy Spirit within me. Because I can't do it in and of myself. I will fail every single time. Remember what Peter said. Oh yeah, Christ, they are, all, you know, all these yoke jokers, they're going to run, they're going to hide. I'll be there. <laughs>
2: I'll be there. Yeah. If I'm looking at this and I'm trying to learn the truth, if you look at the old law, the old law could never work externally to cleanse the internal. It was never
1: intended to do that.
2: And all it was was a schoolmaster to educate us to the
1: our own utter depravity. Yeah, our depravity. That's all. That's all the good. that
2: worked in us is what's the empowering agent today mm-hmm. to help us live that Christian life. It's not in our own strength. No. The minute we get in our own strength, our we fail. Flesh, we fail. Yes. I agree with
1: that 100%. And, that, and that's really what Paul's saying in Romans seven. That
2: makes me Armenian. Our I gotta. Famous, r- I don't know. I gotta write. <laughs> I gotta write oh, this no. down. right <laughs> somebody write down this time. It's
1: it's. Uh, it's uh, eight oh one. He agrees with me. Not okay. I still, you know, yeah.
2: in this and you know, I'm looking at this from a perspective of how I was raised. I understand. And you know, certain scriptures, because you know, I could, I could, I don't want to be the dead horse because we've talked about it before. But there's a whole body of evidence in there of those that have fallen by the wayside. You, know? mm-hmm. and you can you can go through that whole Bible and and see that you know the parables, whatever. And, you know, you
1: see those things, you're learning
2: from that perspective of what you were fed as a young
1: Christian. And what you usually got to do is you got to go back and look at the premise. If the premise was those are believers that lost it, you're going to wind up down your path or the path that you were brought up in. Mm -hmm. If you understand it, and I think from the biblical perspective, which I think is correct, that these were not believers at all, but these were people that sort of were attracted, but they were not truly born again, you have no problem. Tears, you know, and the church is full of those. I mean, we got them, you know, and, and, and you see that if, if you really, if you really study, if you really do an in-depth, comprehensive study of the life of Christ and, and the people that followed him, I think it'll really sort it out for you, because what did he have? He had a lot of people that walked with him, but how many true disciples did he have? You are my true disciple if you do what? You obey. You obey. That's the difference.
2: Believe me, I was pretty that on my life.
1: But why can you obey? The only reason you can obey in the grander scheme of things is because you were given to Christ by the Father in eternity past. You made a choice for Christ in time, supposedly of your own choice, but it really wasn't your choice. It was God who gave you the ability to believe. And then it's he who empowers you to live this Christian life. You can't live the Christian life on your own. You cannot please God. Romans 8, those that are in the flesh cannot please God. Period. You can't. You can't. Paul said, "I know that in me, that is in my flesh dwells no good thing." And and, and when we depend on ourselves, we're going to follow what Peter did. I'll never deny you. Yeah, right. Before the cock crows three times, you're going to den- crows. You're going to deny me three times. And he did. Why? Because Peter says, "I don't need your power. I can do it on my own." Yeah. We can't do it on our own. We can't survive on our own. We have to submit ourselves to God. What does it say? Submit yourselves to God, then do what? Resist the devil. And a lot of people say, you know, well, you got to stand firm, resist the devil, resist the devil. Yeah, right. But what gives me the power to resist the devil? I submit to God's power, which then gives me the power to resist the devil. Because if I try to resist the devil on my own, I become a grease spot because he's a lot bigger and stronger than I am. And I can't, I cannot fight him on my own strength. You can't. You cannot. And don't let any guy on TV tell you that because you're a child of God, you can order the devil around. It doesn't work that way. You got to submit yourselves to God. And Paul said, I know that when I am weak, then I am strong. What does he mean? When I'm not depending on my own strength, but God's strength, that's when I'm strong. Not when I'm depending on my own resources and my own power and my own strength. It is God that gives me the ability to do that. Christ is saying, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and, it, and they're going to eternally secure. Why? Because my Father and I are hanging on to them. And my Father and I agree together on this. So not only do you have the Christ on your side, you have the God the Father on your side, and you've got the Holy Spirit on your side. The entire Trinity is pulling for you. That's true. It takes all of them. Yeah, yeah, it takes off. I, I have to say, you know, it takes all three of them to get you to heaven. I mean, that's all. You know, but you're you're secure. You can't lose it. You cannot lose it because your nature is changed. You have holy desires, holy aspirations. Does that mean you obey all the time? Of course it doesn't. But do you want to? Where does that come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. And, and, and we, you know, a lot of times I think one of the weaknesses we have as Christians sometimes is we think we don't need God as much as we do.
0: That's the truth. You keep saying that. You keep saying that. It keeps touching to um, just look back at other people that are classified as Christians or they portray themselves to be a Christian. But at the same time, they see someone needs Jesus, to like um, Pastor Dear said. Yeah. But instead of them helping them out, they just kind of shove them off to like the next person or an mm-hmm. organization instead of the organism, which is God, mm-hmm. his people pulling together to do things for the people. And then that way we don't have to worry about all these institutions because we're actually showing the love right. that Christ has yeah. for us. So, you know, we, we see, Christian is like a title nowadays.
1: Oh, yeah. It's, it, go, it looks good in the obituary section that you went to a certain church, you know. And yeah. It's good to get buried in a church. It's good to get. Yeah, but you yeah.
0: really developed a relationship that really made a difference. Or other than just going to church on Sunday, Bible study on Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever. Actually living that life that Jesus Christ is speaking of here. There's a lot of Pharisees in the mm-hmm. church, period.
1: Yeah. James says pure religion undefiled is to do what? Follow us and the widows. And to keep yourself unspotted from the world, you want true you want you want to know who the true religious people are, they're the ones who live it. And how can you live it? You can live it because God has given you the ability to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit that works in you. It's God which works in you, Philippians two thirteen. He works in you to will and to do of his good favor. yeah I'm sorry. no that's fine
0: speaking of going there and we we all keep saying that we know how wretched and how wicked we are and if we really know that we would go back and, and we see those people that do those things which we despise If we know god despises us what do we do you encourage them through the words don't sit there and say look at them doing that yeah because that's yeah. what a lot of people do that's, that's right. what a lot of people in the Condemned. church do and they forget that God has saved them. And if He saved them, what He said, He says, "There's others that, mm-hmm. uh, that are not in my fold
1: right now, but they are my sheep." I grew up uh, in a church where you're supposed to not hang around with people who sin. Well, the problem with that is you might as well find yourself a planet somewhere and you know sit on Mars. The problem is nobody would come to Mars because they'd be around a center, right? <laughs> they wouldn't come around you. He, look, folks, we're in the world, and and we need to be salt and light. And what we have done as Christians, and, and I think Christianity has done, is we've made the world our enemy. Look, you don't have to make the world your enemy. It is your enemy. You don't have to make it your enemy. But they're not the enemy. They're the mission field. They're, You know, when you look at, you know, when you have somebody at, at work and they say, yeah, you know, I moved in with my boyfriend or whatever. You say, oh, you godly, oh, God's going to judge you. Look, wait a minute. What do you expect unbelievers to do? What do you expect them to do? Yeah, you're supposed to expect book? them to move in and live with them. I mean, that's what that's what you do. What do you expect a pig to do? Oink and go and play in the mud. You expect that, all right? Expect the sinner to sin. That's what they're 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 very good at that. Don't be shocked by that. You know, because because and instead of judging them, pity them. And that's what yeah. Paul sort of says in, in Ephesians 4. He says, don't don't for, he said don't forget that one time you were in darkness. Exactly. You guys used to walk in darkness too, you know. And the longer you've been a Christian, the harder it is to remember what it was like when you were a pagan. And some of us like me, you know, I've I've been in church all my life. I became a Christian at a very young age. I was I never got to I never got to the pagan alcoholic drugs, smoking running around carousing stage. I've never I didn't have to go through that, thank goodness. But that doesn't make me any better than anybody else. It just I skipped a spot I skipped one of the little mud holes on the way through life. But um look uh, those are big
2: ones,
1: those are big <laughs> those mud holes and you can get you can God. stuck in them a long those time. But but we forget we forget what it was like to not believe and not understand. And we have very little tolerance for those. And the Bible says, you know, You need to be a patient. Your life should be a rebuke to the world. You don't need to be vocal about it and, you know, expect the world to sin. How did Christ Christ treat the people he preached to? He treated
0: them very
1: well. I mean, if he was the average church member, he would have been obnoxious. Yeah. Nobody would have wanted to go around him, because after all, he was right about everything. You know that. Mm-hmm. But he did not treat people that way. The only people he really ran into and had trouble with were the people that didn't think they needed help. Yeah. the friend of sinners. And the little kids loved him. I mean little kids wanted to be around him. suffer so the little children to come unto me. I mean, you know, if kids like running around with you, you're not a, you know, think about your average Baptist preacher. You think kids want to hang around with him much? You know, go away, kids. You bothered me. You know.
2: If I remember the kid growing up when the pastor came over,
1: you were afraid. You're scared to death. You know. <laughs> yeah.
2: appreciate having a priest kicking out of the confessional. You know. <laughs>
1: boy that's really bad
2: <laughs> that's, that's really bad eh? <laughs>
1: verse 31 then the Jews took up stones again to stone him Jesus answered them many good works have I shown you from my father for which of these works do you stone me and the Jews answered him, saying, For good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you being a man make yourself to be God. They knew exactly what he was saying. Don't let anybody tell you that Jesus did not claim to be God. That's stupid. By the way, Ken Copeland, in his circular Bible's leader's voice of victory, or whatever, something like that, said Jesus never claimed to be God. And you say, well, Kenny, where'd you get that? He said, well, Jesus showed up to me. He was 90 feet tall. And he showed up to me and said he never claimed to be God. He just loved God and and, and wanted people to. Look, folks, you know, you I'm not making that up. All right. So, Kenneth Copeland. So, He's a heretic. Stay away from so, him. Hagan Copeland, stay away from them. They are bad news. Oh, stay, them away. Them. stay away. Stay okay. away. Don't even go near him. Well, Don't go near him. Don't go near him. <laughs> <laughs> Copeland basically said Jesus never. He says it's he. It's his own words. He said Jesus appeared to him as an as a ninety foot Jesus in a vision and said this. Jesus said he never claimed to be God, but he merely walked like something like he walked with God and 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 wanted people to be like God. And of course, their whole theme is we are little gods to be like God. That's their whole yes, that's spin the on things. Well. The, the word faith crowd, you need you need to run when they when they come near. You, you need to run. Kenneth Copeland, Hagen, um, Marilyn Hickey's one of those. Um, you, you just need to run from those people. They're, they're just bad news. They deny the, they deny the Grace deity of Christ, Meyer, huh? I don't know. I don't know about her. Marilyn Hickey was, is.
2: Yeah, they can't run. Yeah.
1: Marilyn Hickey is, but but yeah. but you know, and, and you wanna you can do research on these people. I'm not making this up. They they they, they claim heretical things. Jesus is not God. We're gonna be like God. You know, we are little gods. You know, that that's just heresy. No. A profile? I missed that, but
2: I wanted to see people it on the see this this morning. This the morning. Millions and millions, millions of dollars for that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you gotta watch these guys. Yeah, you you know, it's because they use Jesus talk and Bible talk and God talk does not mean they know Him. And and what the problem here is, these Jews knew exactly what Christ was claiming. He was claiming to be God. And Jesus answered and said to them, "Is it not written in your law? I said you are God." He quotes out of Psalm. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Look at the works I am doing. What am I doing? I am ravaging the kingdom of Satan. I have power over demons. I'm raising the dead. I'm healing every form of disease. And your conclusion is I am not of God. Your conclusion is I am not from him. How can I do these things if it were not for the power of God? Think, guys. But see, they're not thinking because, again, here's the problem. Jesus does not fit their theological model. And because of that, he cannot be God because, after all, their theological model is right. So if you don't agree with them, you're obviously wrong. It didn't matter what Jesus did. It didn't matter what miracles he did. They didn't care. And they sought to seize him, but he escaped out of their hands. They not we're going to kill him right there. And they went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first. Where's that? Bethany beyond Jordan. And where is that? It's up by the Sea of Galilee, a little bit south of the
2: sea. Yeah.
1: And stayed there. Then many came to him saying, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true. And many believed in him there. They came up. A lot of people came up there. Now, why did he get out of Jerusalem? It Wasn't time yet, right? It wasn't time yet. And, the, and what you see here is you start seeing a division. Between those who refuse Him, those who are confused, and then those who finally are believing on Him. And you know, when it comes to Christ, you know, there's no middle ground. He is or He isn't. He is or He isn't. If you're not with me, you're against me. If you don't gather with me, you scatter abroad. But he was up there and many came and believed. Chapter 11, now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. Now this is not Bethany beyond Jordan, this is Bethany down by Jerusalem. The town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her lo- hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Uh, Mary, Martha, Lazarus were close friends of Christ. He spent a lot of time there. And what happened? Lazarus fell sick. And um, the sisters sent for Christ because they knew what? He could heal him. He could heal, he heal him. And when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. What does it mean he loved them? He was close to them. They were was really good friends. You know, they were, they were very close. All right. So he heard that he was sick. He stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. So he heard that Lazarus was sick. Now, you got to understand... It's not like the sister said, look, he's got a cold. You know, he's feeling a little bit peaked or something like that. This whole idea was if they were going to send a delegation to Christ, what kind of sickness was it? It was a very serious one, he was going to die. They, they, they thought he would die, actually. And he did. I mean, but it was it was not the sniffles that he had. It was a, a serious ailment. We don't know what it was, but it was a serious ailment. And Christ took his time. Now, what lesson is, that, is there in us? Is there? What lesson is there for us in this?
2: God's timetable is not our timetable.
1: Yeah, He doesn't have our day planner. Let God, uh, let God do it on His own time. Now, Mary and Martha thought, of course, Christ would drop everything and come running and heal Lazarus, right? Now, if Christ would have done that, what would have happened?
0: He could,
1: he could have healed him. And it would have been a blip on the page of Scripture. It wouldn't have been a whole chapter at least, but it would have been a blip. Because he healed a lot of people, didn't he? I mean, he healed an awful lot of people. But this, there's something special going on with this one.
2: Is this the first time you wrote someone from the dead?
1: No. We have the widow of Nain. Yeah, and right. we had the little girl. Remember? He raised yeah, Jairus' daughter. But
0: all of them were like
1: almost immediately after the dead. Right. He's, he's waiting on this one. Days.
2: So this yeah. One is clearly,
1: this person's gone. Yeah, dead, dead. And see, the Jews had, you know, he, also Christ is playing into the superstition of the day. Because the Jewish superstition was after a person dies, their spirit sort of floats around the body until the body is too decayed for it to recognize and then it goes off to wherever spirits go. So their idea was you know, if, if somebody dies, you know, and then they come back to life, they were really not dead, dead.
0: Hmm.
1: Okay. The and
2: spirit the body.
1: Yeah. And and you got to understand back in those days, you know, they did not have the advanced medical techniques that we have today. I mean, I don't know if you knew this. It's fascinating when you go back and look at history and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, one of the great scares in the 1700s. People spent a lot, lot of money in this. Is, is the fear of seeming to have died, but not really die, and being buried alive. Very common. Yes, common. And um, and, and they had all kinds of elaborate schemes, you know, to, to ring a bell, or, or, or to let somebody know you're really not dead. Like, if you wake up in your coffin, you can ring a bell, and somebody will let you out. And it, they were scared to death that their bodies would be stolen for medical research. They had special coffins that, like, the lid went down, and it locked from the inside so that you know, you couldn't get the body out. I mean, it was people were scared to death. This is and in my own family history, my uh, great grandmother's um, had had a brother, and uh, he married a, a woman named uh, Agnes Stillgard. And her mom, she married her very young. She was about like sixteen or something like that when she got married. And I could never figure out, you know, how to get married so young. She was she had to get people to actually signed for her to get married. And this is back like in eighteen seventies or you know back in the early eighteen hundreds or late eighteen hundreds. And uh, what had happened is her mother had evidently fallen into a coma and they're actually carrying her out of the house to take her to bury her. And she revived on the way to being buried. And it scared her so much that she arranged to get her daughter married off to, you know, my great grandmother's brother, you know, before she supposedly died. She lived a few years after that. But they're actually taking her out to bury her. You know. Um, that's sort of a freaky little thing in, in the family. Yeah, you, you dig all kinds of little nuggets out of family history when you're doing that. But yeah, she, she supposedly died, and they were going to take and bury her, and she revived. You know, well, they, they didn't have you know medical; they couldn't see your brain waves and all that kind of stuff like that. So it was common. So Christ not only waited for him to die, but he waited for him to be good and dead, good and dead. In fact, so dead, dead that there would be no possibility, even if you, and although the Jewish folklore was, of course, incorrect, there would be no possibility, even according to the folklore, that he could be revived. All right. And, you know, God likes to do this. God likes to set up these impossible kind of scenarios, doesn't he? You know, like Elijah, I want to see a replay of that on heaven when I get there, you know. You know, here's these guys trying to get the fire to come down from from Baal and they're cutting themselves and on all day long and, and finally it's Elisha's turn. He takes twelve stones and he stacks them up and he puts the wood on there and he puts the offering on there. And I would have made sure I'd have got the driest wood I could find, you know, and put on there. And he said, "Let's uh, let's go get some water and let's uh, put a ditch around and so let's go douse this thing." So they went down, they got water and they soaked this thing so thoroughly, soaking wet that when God answered by fire, there was no doubt, there was no hidden match, there was no hidden fire. There was no trick to it. It was God who answered. And I think God took special joy in that, saying, you know, give me give me something hard to do, you know. Um, God does not, by the way, and another thing here, God does not need your help in answering your prayers. God can do it perfectly fine without your assistance. Um, every time in the Bible someone's tried to give God a hand, they've mucked it up. You know, Abraham says, okay, I'm going to get an heir. Okay, how are we going to do that? Well, let's help God out by Hagar. Well, that was a big mistake. All right. You know, let's give God a hand. And God said, no, no, I don't need a hand. You know, Abraham's, Abraham's great lack of faith. There was not lack of faith in believing God would give him an heir. But how was God going to give him an heir? And because God was taking his time, Abraham decided, I need to give God a hand. And he messed it up. God does not need your assistance. Christ has given Lazarus time to die and say, well, that's pretty cruel of Christ, you know, to have the guy die and suffer. And Folks, it's about God's glory, not about your comfort. You realize that. And a billion years in eternity isn't going to matter anyways, is it? He's saying here, this was not unto death. The idea of not unto death is not that Lazarus is not going to die, but the purpose of this sickness is not for him to die and be gone. There's a grander purpose beyond him just dying here. But that the Son of Man would be glorified in this. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and you're going back down there? You're going back down to that den? They tried to kill you, Remember? Jesus said, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What's, he, what's Christ saying? You need to make hay while the sun's shining. I'm the light of the world. I need to do the works while I'm here. Why? Because there's a night coming. What do you say? The night, Work for the night is coming when no man can work. Work
0: while it's
1: day. Work while it's day. Work while you can. Work while you have an opportunity. Because it's coming a time when the night's here and you can't work. And Christ is saying, "There's a time for me to work and there's time for me not to work. And there's coming a night, but until the night's here, I'm going to do the works of the Father that sent me." So that's what verse
2: ten
1: saying. Yeah. Well, it's just a metaphor, you know. And in those days, they didn't have flashlights, they didn't have street lights. you know. The basic idea is if you're walking around the wilderness at night, you're going to stumble over things because so you can't see where you're going. So when do you do works? When do you do them? Well, you do them while the light's there, while there's opportunity. Because there's coming a night when you can't work. And these things he said, these things he said, and after that he said, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may awake him. He sleeps. That's a euphemism for death. But to the believer, what is death? Sleep. Sleep, right? Remember he said about the little girl, she's not dead, she sleeps. And they laughed him to scorn. No, we don't believe in soul sleep. That's a this refers to the physical body. To be absent from the Lord be absent from the body is be present with the Lord. Philippians. Um you know, if you, if you go home tonight, you get run over by a truck on the way home, you're going to be immediately in the presence of the Lord. You're not going to you're not going to wake up and at the judgment, basically. You're going to be there in the presence of the Lord. The physical body, yeah.
0: What do you think about the pastors that preach on just the healing?
1: Just the healing.
0: Yeah, like right here, we know that Jesus scorned to to um, raise Lazarus from the dead for his purpose for him to glorify. Right. So, what about when you hear people or preachers say, "Well, it's not God's will that you be sick," which we know that it wasn't in His will, but due to sin come in, that's where death and sickness came. So, a person will figure, "Oh, well, God didn't heal me."
1: You ignore that kind of silliness.
0: Um, um, I mean, it, it, it's in the churches.
1: I know it is. It is. You, you you have to you have to reject that kind you have to reject that kind of silliness, because ultimately every one of us is going to die. Period. All right. So whether whether you're healed from, whether, whether you go to Benny Hinn and get healed, or you go to Henry Hinn, his brother, and get healed, or you go over to see um, Morris Cirillo, or you see the uh, Ernest Angling get healed, someday you're not going to get healed. You're going to die. All right. That's silliness. All right. Is there healing in the atonement? Yes, but that's eternal healing. I don't get the healing down here. I get the healing in heaven. That's when I get healed. Is there healing in the atonement? Yes, but it's not here. It's there. All right. Um, down here, we live in a fallen world. We're fallen creatures. And the question is not, why am I not? Why am I sick? The question is, why am I not sick? That's right.
2: right? We're, we're instructed to seek first the kingdom of God. Right. Christ, of. right. All these other things will be added to us. Our first and foremost need is the right relationship with God in whatever spiritual aspect that brings. Yeah. Our physical life is secondary to that.
1: Mm-hmm. And for people who say it's not God's will for you to be sick, they're ignorant of the Scripture. They're ignorant of the Scripture. They're to be rejected. Was it God's will that Job get sick? Yeah, good he allowed it, right? Sure did. But there's a grander purpose, wasn't there?
2: Was absolute sovereignty.
1: Yeah. I mean, we've got 66 books in our Bible because of that whole scenario. Well, that's so you where you have
0: people that are searching and seeking these types of churches because mm-hmm. they saying, oh, you'll be blessed because you're giving, which so we have already touched on that, or you're going to be healed because of your obedience to this and the other. So really, they're mocking God and calling them a liar.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you want somebody to love you because of what you give them? Or do you want them to love you for you? God's the same way. And these jokers that go around saying, you need to do this because you know, then God will look that they, they, they don't understand the relationship there. I do not love God. Look, folks, let's be honest. Do you love God? How how should you love God? For what He's for for what you get from Him or for who He is? For who He is. What you get from Him is icing on the cake. That's a good that's good. That's not why you serve Him. And the problem is with a lot of these guys is they make you know, well, serve God and go to this church and give this money because then God owes it to you. That's not a relationship. That's a business deal. And God does not want you. Yeah. Look, you need, when I see you in heaven, I want to love God because of who He is, not for what I get out of it. Now, I get some wonderful stuff out of it. That's not why. Right. I'm sorry. No, Bart's no, waving his hand.
0: No, that's all right. You know, I mean, this, this whole thing, I mean, it completely mystified some sort of the things. I, mean, I was in a hospital waiting
2: room, major, it year you know, and then on TV was Ernest Ange. I think he was on the African continent, you know, and he had someone walking around. I mean, it reminded me of James Brown, really. <laughs> What's going on? I couldn't understand. I mean, I can't understand that healing thing. It's beyond me. I don't understand it. You're not
1: supposed to understand it. Because it's not biblical. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's just, not biblical. Yeah,
2: there were there's thousands and thousands of followers there, you know.
1: What you know, when you got, when you look at these guys on television that the emphasis in their ministry is not on spiritual healing. Right. It's not on it's not on your sin and your need for repentance and salvation and to be broken before God. It's on prosperity. Let's be yeah. happy. Yeah. That's not what Christianity is all about. That is not the voice of the shepherd
0: you know and in each of them um, all, everyone you see because I, I was talking to one of my co-workers today about that because he asked about that here uh, and I you know so I said well look at scripture do you see any of these televangelists these healing guys restoring limbs no do you yeah. see anyone giving sight to
2: the blind no do you see anyone curing leprosy not you know
1: slower back pain
2: months from now, you know, you know? Doing better no <laughs>
1: It's lower back pain.
2: A guy asked me about that one time, and I told him, this is what I said. I said, if he's healing anybody, I said, there'd be a throng of people there in, in two weeks' time that the state of Ohio couldn't bring out the National Guard to hold Because if anybody was, I'm talking about a true healing. I'm talking about somebody going there that knows, a shout I'm talking about like that guy laid at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. Someone like that goes in there and gets healed. He's going to tell somebody that knows somebody, that knows him, that knows it's real. And the next thing you know, it's going to spread like wildfire and the people are going to fly.
1: Well, a friend of mine, a friend of mine talking, told me about someone who went to uh, a certain church on the north coast when Henry Hen (laughs) showed up um, to do some. That's Benny Hen's brother. Henry came into town and uh, he went forward to get healed. And he was told that they weren't doing migraines that night, but to come back the next night. (laughs) They do migraines. They're doing lower back pain or something like that. Look, folks, it's silliness.
2: It's silliness.
1: No, It's silliness. It's silliness.
2: Restoring a withered hand. That's very visible. You can see that right now.
1: putting Malchus's ear back on. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, look, th- that's silliness. All right. You need to stay away from that kind of stuff.
2: I mean, it's a sad commentary. I of these people, actors, are they really that gullible and they're falling down? Is it demonic? What I mean, what's going on there? A little bit of everything. You
1: know? I saw one thing where some guy was supposedly healing. You know, this guy in a wheel, supposedly in a wheelchair or whatever. You know, and he picked the cane up and threw it away and had the guy run across the stage. Well, he took the cane out of a guy who was really crippled, but the guy who ran around the stage wasn't crippled. He was. <laughs> Oh, so it makes it, it makes it it makes him look like you know he's healed somebody. Well, he didn't heal anybody. You've
2: seen you've seen too the the news programs that they send people in undercover and, and they find out they got people out in the vestibule talking to people right. getting information and the guy comes up, I got a word that someone here is, you know, facing this and somebody picked it up and sent it in to him. That's, that's all perfect. it is.
1: There's no there's no verifiable when you look at the modern charismatic movement and that There's no very viable organic healing done by these guys. And if they could do that, they could walk in any hospital in in the state and clean it out. No. No.
2: You know, I'm a, I'm but there's no offerings in that. know Go and get so Miss you know
1: here's Miss McGillicuddy who's got you know quadruple heart bypass. You know she may be able to go gone there and give her a new heart like a 16 year old but no, don't do that. There's no offerings in that, but we can stage a show down here at a church and make some money. Um, look, Christ Christ could do these healings and, and all the healings in the scripture were pointing to his power over disease. They were there for a purpose. They were not trivial, silly, Stupid kind of things. He healed people with true organic diseases. A paralytic led down through the roof, got up and walked. A guy who's been sitting by the pool of Bethesda for 38 years walked. A guy who was born blind and is now over 30 years old could receive his sight. Here's somebody here who is dead, dead. They, they embalmed the guy. Now, they didn't embalm him in our medical sense of replacing the blood with embalming fluid. but They wrapped him up tight, put a lot of spices in him because, you know, bodies would stink in that kind of arid and hot environment. You know, wouldn't take too long for the smell to overpower you. So they, they wrapped him up tight and stuck him in a in a cave. He was dead, dead. And he, not only that, he'd been laying in there four days. He was really dead. And, and again, what God is doing is God's just setting up the impossible so that when he does something, there's no mistaking about what's going on here. And the disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, we'll get well. Right over the head, right? Well, it's a good thing. He's taking a nap. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. You know, they always miss the point. <laughs> But you know what? You, you sit there and say, Oh, those idiots, you know, if I was there, I would have known. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't have been any better. You'd have been just as dumb as they were. Yeah. And Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let's go see him. Why, am I, why did Lazarus die? So that you would believe. So that God would be glorified in his resurrection. Then Thomas, who was called the Twelve, said to his fellow disciples, uh, All right, let's go. We'll die with him. Thomas was the good pessimist. You know, he was, the, he was the Eeyore of the Twelve, I guess, you know. Let's go. We'll die too. You know, well, the last time Jesus was down there, he they were going to pick up stones to throw at him, right? But you know what? At least Thomas went with him. You know? So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. It took a couple of days to get down there. Jesus took his time. He'd been in the tomb four days. So three days was the limit. The The Jewish folklore said that after three days, the spirit is gone. I mean, it's, it's not going to hang around a decaying, stinking, dead body for three days. It's gone, gone. There's no hope for him to come back. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. You know, this was a sad thing. Their brother died. Um, Most likely he was the breadwinner in the family. There's no indication here of their parents. So, you know, this was a bad thing for him to die. Now, Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house Martha's the type A. You ever have a type A? You know, she's the one always running around. Lord, tell my sister to come help me. She's the type A. Lord, if you have been here, my brother would not have died. Now, some people look at it and say, well, she's accusing him. You know, she's angry with him. She's mad at him. No, I just think she's making a statement, right? Because her, what does she believe? He could heal him. I mean, if you were here, he he could heal them. But let's go look at verse 22. What's it say there? Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. What's the difference between Mary, Martha, Lazarus, and the Pharisees? They were the sheep, weren't they? They were sheep. They They knew. In fact, Martha said, I know that whatever you ask God, he'll give you. This is an affirmation of who she she believed that Christ was from the father. She believed that. And she believed in who who he was because she, she knew that Christ could do nothing except the father gave him the power. So her faith was whatever God, whatever you ask of God, he'll he will do it. This was an affirmation of faith. This was not an accusation of anger or why didn't you come or what. This was this was an affirmation. Lord, if you were here, you could have saved him. You could have healed him. But even now, I know whatever you ask of God, he'll, he'll do it. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. He said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She believed in the resurrection. And she thought that's what Christ was talking about. You know, Christ Martha, he's he's not dead. He'll he'll rise again. I know that. He'll he'll rise again in the last day. I know that. She had a good orthodox view of resurrection. By the way, there is a resurrection. Don't let anybody tell you there isn't. It's a bodily, physical resurrection. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection in life. This is one of the great memory verses I learned as a child. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I am the resurrection. I am the life. What 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 is it that enables us to rise again from the dead? Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter. If we do not believe that Jesus died and rose again, we are of all men most pitied. (coughs) No one can be a true believer and not believe in the resurrection of Christ. The physical, bodily resurrection. Because what is that? That validated what? I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to... Take it up. This was given to me by the Father. Therefore, if he did not take it up again, what would that tell you about the Father? He didn't give it to, he didn't give it to him. him. And really what, what Romans 1 says, Romans 1, 4, says Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. In, vain. In Romans 1, 3 and 4, Paul says, you know, we know that Christ is Messiah for two reasons. Reason number one, he was born of the seed of David. That's the human component. He's from the line of David. He has the right lineage. But he was raised again from the dead. And it says there, he was declared to be the Son of God with power. The word declare there, horizo, we get the word horizon. And what, what is the horizon? The horizon, when you looked out on the ocean, the horizon was the dividing line between what? No. The sky and the land. And the land or the sky and the water. Whatever. What forever marked Christ out as the Son of God? The resurrection. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. There's none of this, gee, is he the Son of God or not? He rose again from the dead. Of course he is. That forever separated it out. And that's what Christ is telling her. I am the resurrection. And because I'm the resurrection, I have the power to do what? Well, I not only have the power to raise myself, but what is he hinting at? I can raise anybody I want. And who gets raised? Well, you go back to John chapter 6. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and I will raise him up at the last day. All who see the Son and believe in him will what? Will be raised again at the last day. Christ has the power to raise us up. The power of the resurrection is in him. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Why? Because I am the resurrection. If you believe in me, you're one of my sheep. And What am I going to do with my sheep? I'm going to give them everlasting life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. I believe that. She believed it. She believed he was the Messiah. And when she had said these things, she went away and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling from you. And as soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Mary didn't know Christ was around. Martha came and said, hey, the teacher's calling Mary came running. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. He was still outside the town. Martha heard he was coming. She ran outside the town to meet him. She goes back and tells her sister, and now her sister comes. Then the Jews were with her in the house and comforting her. When they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out and followed her, saying, she is going to the tomb to weep there. Martha came in and whispered in her ear, the teacher is coming. Come on out. So Mary takes off, and people say, oh, she's going to go down to the tomb and weep some more. I mean, you know, people died. That was a big deal in those days. You actually had professional mourners. You hired them. Professional mourners to weep when somebody died. Um, And they all thought she was going out to the tomb to mourn, to weep. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying, Lord... If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Sort of the same thing that Martha said, right? Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Both of them had faith that Christ could heal their brother. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and he said, where have you laid him? What's going on here? I thought he was sovereign God. I thought he knew... This. I thought he ordained this. I mean, what's he whining about? He took two days, you know, he t- took his time to get down there. What's going on? Compassion pain. His compassion. It's his compassion. It's his compassion. Did he know the plan of God? Sure. Did he know this was for, that he might be, glorified? absolutely. But it didn't alleviate the pain of going through it, did it? And when he saw the sorrow of Mary for her brother, what do you think we were reminded of?
2: The day is coming
1: for him. Possibly. The wages of sin is? Death. That was not part of his original design, but it came in. And he felt compassion. He cared. Christ cared for this family. This was a special family to him. And he cared for Mary, and he cared for Martha. They cared for Lazarus. And they said to him, Lord, come and see, where have you laid him? Uh, they would put his body in a tomb, in a cave. And evidently they had some kind of wealth because they were able to do that. Not everybody got a cave of their own. And caves were used over and over and over again. So it's not uncommon for a cave to have many bodies in them. And she, and they said, Lord, come and see. And it said Jesus wept. Yeah, that's the first memory verse you memorized. right? It was easy, right?
2: <laughs> was yeah. Yeah.
1: Then the Jews said, actually, it's not the shortest version. There. In the Greek, there's another verse that's shorter, and I can't remember where it is. But Then Jesus said, see how they love. The Jews said, see how they love. Christ wept. Why did Christ weep? Did Christ weep out of sorrow for for de- Lazarus' death? I, I don't think so. I think he wept because the, the, the sin. The, what was so beautiful you know, the creation he made was so marred by sin. And he cared for this guy. Jesus wept over Jerusalem, didn't he? You say, well, now wait a minute, come on. You know, the you know, the, the good hyper-Calvinists would sit there and say, now look, Christ, you knew that they were going to reject you. What are you weeping about? Come on, you knew that. If you wanted to do something about it, you could just ordain them and chosen them. Don't go there. Why? Because God has compassion. God says, I don't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. Psalm. I forget what that is in Psalm. Christ said, I don't delight in the death of the wicked. I don't I don't delight in, in judgment. That's not that's not what I enjoy doing. He actually cared. He had compassion. He wept because this was his friend. And some said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? It goes back to this blind guy. I mean, this blind guy made a big impression, right? This is the second reference we have to him after chapter 9. Couldn't he have healed this man? And the rhetorical answer is probably. I They're confused. Then Jesus, again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave. And a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Um, They would bury you in a cave and, you know, have a little entrance into the cave part. And then they put a stone in there, you know, to keep the, you know, the scavengers from going in there and ravaging the body. And also to plug up the stink, you know, to keep the smell inside. They didn't have embalming in those days, so it didn't take very long for the decay to set in. <laughs> and Martha, the sister of him was dead, saying, Lord, by this time there's a stench for he's been dead four days. That's not a very good thing to do. He's been dead for four days. So in
0: those days, did they bury some in the and some
1: in, like, in the Yeah. They got caves of their own, you know, family burying cave. Remember, Abraham bought the cave of Machpelah to bury him and his family in. You know, so you had like, instead of a family graveyard, you had the family cave where you'd bury people. Um, And there's a lot of caves in that area.
2: you'd put in a bone box,
1: wouldn't you? Yeah, they would, after you decayed and were totally, you know, they would sometimes take and put you in an ossuary, which is a little box with just your bones in it. called an ossuary. Re- reuse
2: the
1: yeah. Reusable cave. In fact, over in Europe right now, you know, like in Germany, they don't have permanent burial plots. You basically rent a burial plot for 50 years, then it's reused. You know, so you, they bury you for 50 years and they dig, or 25 years or whatever, dig up your bones, toss your bones out and bury someone else in the same spot. You know, so you don't have like a permanent grave. You just don't. I mean, there, there are certain places in where they have certain you know permanent graves but by and large it's not like here in America you know where you've got your family tombs you know I can go see the burial spot of my fifth great grandfather who's been there since 17 whatever you know you don't have that in in a lot of the places of the world or you bury multiple people in the grave you know you have a hole and you bury five or six people in it Um, but they buried him in a cave and, and of course this was not a good thing to do because this is at the height of the decay I mean the body is really starting to, to decompose at this point. And Jesus said, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see what? Love God. If you believe. Then they took the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, because but because of the people who are standing by the I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. His face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, loose him and let him go. And Christ is just sticking it to the Pharisees and the Jews. Give us a sign. What does he do? He says audibly, out loud, Father, so that they may know that you have sent me. Lazarus, come forth. And the guy came out. And someone said, I think some preacher said probably wisely, had Christ not qualified his statement, all the dead would have rise. What's he have? He has the power to take it down, the power to lift it up. Lay it down in power to take it up again. He is the resurrection and the life. And how did the Jews respond? <laughs> Gee, he is the son of God. Maybe we better believe. No? Verse 45, then many of the Jews, you know, these are the fence sitters. They got pushed over the edge now. They believe. Wait a minute. Wait. Stop. Okay. Time. This is it. This guy came out of the grave. He was dead, dead. He stank. And you got to understand, when they rolled the stone away, they could smell it. He was dead, dead. What's he doing walking out of the tomb alive? No way. You know, they believed. But some of them went away to the Pharisees, the tattlers, and told them the things that Jesus did. Then the chief priests and Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. That is freaking amazing.
2: They admitted that he was
1: Show us a sign. Give us a sign. Okay, I'll raise the dead. We gotta kill him to shut him up. This is not a good thing. He's going to really mess things up for us here. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Why were they afraid? They were afraid that if they didn't do anything about Christ, he would be the Messiah. The Romans would come in and would destroy their nation. Now, here you understand, and we're, we're out of time on this, but I'll try to do it a little bit. Their eschatological understanding of the Messiah when he came was that he would... He'd bring in a political kingdom, he would destroy occupying forces and send them out of the country and, and and raise Jerusalem up to a place of power. The Messiah would give them political victory. So the fact that they said he was the Romans will come in and take away our place in our country meant what? They didn't consider him to be the Messiah. They can't argue with the miracles now. He's doing the signs and wonders. But good night, we can't have him be the Messiah because that would mean we're going to lose our place because we know he can't be the Messiah. Folks, the, the, the thing is, you know, when the Pharisees had their little multiple choice test that the little Pharisee would have, who is Jesus, one of the boxes that you could select was not the Messiah. They did not have that as a selection on A, B, C, and D. They had madman they had demon they had a false teacher they had that they had a sinner but there was nothing that said son of god that was not in their thinking and these pharisees and, and 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 the idea here the jews these are the religious leaders said we are in trouble if we don't do something we're going to lose everything. What were they going to lose? You say, I thought the Jews hated the Romans. I thought they wanted the Romans out of there. Well, yeah, yes and no. I mean, the, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, may, were very wealthy under Rome. They didn't want Roman to leave, Romans to leave. They made a lot of money. The Romans granted them stability and power. And the last thing they wanted was, was Rome to come in and destroy Jerusalem. They would lose everything. They didn't want that. They wanted the status quo. The last thing the, the fat Sadducees who, and that's that's the Jews here who ran the temple, the last thing they wanted was an insurrection. And they said, if we don't do something, we're done for. And one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us. That one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. It's better that we kill him than have our entire nation be wiped out by the Romans. And what was Caiaphas? And he was the jackass of the day. Right? He spoke the words of God, but he didn't know he was speaking the words of God, did he? He said this on... Now, this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. God spoke through this man. Now, you've got to understand, Caiaphas was a bad apple. His father was Annas. His father-in-law was Annas. And these two boys ran the temple for a long time. They were the Annas was the high priest prior to Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest for many years. And these guys were fat cats. They were wealthy. He was looking at it the wrong way, but he was saying the right thing. And not for that nation only, but also he would gather together one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. He said it's better that Christ die than the entire nation die. Prophetically talking about how Christ is better that one man should die than the whole world. He said this prophetically. God spoke through him because he was a high priest, even though he was a godless man. And from that day on, they did what? Killing. Amazing. Amazing. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went out from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim and there remained with his disciples. He didn't even go back to Jerusalem. He went out into a desert place, about 12 miles from Jerusalem, this place is. And the Passover, of the Jews was near, and many from the country went up from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he, will, that he will not come to the feast? Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. The whole point here is that Christ went out. He stayed in this little town about 12 miles outside of Jerusalem. Um, he was under hiding with his disciples out there. And the the... The Passover time, which is, you know, sort of March, April here, it's coming up on the Passover. This is when Christ is going to be crucified. And what are they doing? They're hanging around the temple saying, I wonder if he's going to show up because the command was that if anybody see him, the first one to see him should report him so they could seize him. They wanted to find Christ to get him. They were looking for him. They're trying to find out where he was stashed so they could go get him. And what you see here is you see the blindness of unbelief. Folks, those who are in unbelief will not believe, though every sign on the planet is done to them, though God shows up to them in person, they will not believe. They won't. What more could Christ have done? The capstone was to raise a guy from the dead who had been dead for four days. And their conclusion was we got to kill him or we're going to lose our political status and our wealth. And they did. All right. We're one chapter behind, but don't worry. We'll catch up. So any questions or comments before we close? Go see how the Indians are doing. Hopefully they're up about 10, nothing right now. <laughs> Father, time,
2: oh. I was going to say, that's the first time I heard about Caiaphas prophesying that he would die for the nation. So, well, that, that, was, that kind
1: of doesn't say that. He didn't know what he was saying. He was just making a statement. But God was speaking through him because even as a godless high priest, he was still the high priest. Father, thank you for the stay and for teaching us in this time. Help us to ponder these truths, to think about them, to dwell on them. Bring us back safely next week, that we may study again your wondrous word. In Christ's name, Amen.
0: Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to Third Mass Studio at gmail.com For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources visit theopenword.org